rests in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, this will be, I think, our last week on this particular paragraph. We picked up verse uh, 24, which speaks of Paul's afflictions and even ours in the context of filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We picked up verse 27, which speaks of this great mystery hidden until now, hidden until Paul begins to write about this and, and, and people see this Uh, this mystery being revealed, which is that for both Jew and Gentile, the hope of glory is Christ in you. That is, Christ in you, that that one is united to him in such a way that, that he's so close that he lives within us so that all that he has done is extended to us. His, his work on the cross, forgiveness of sins, his life of righteousness, and, and all of that is given to us. That is our hope of glory. We see glimpses of that glory now. We will see that glory that is everything reflecting Christ one day in glory, really, in heaven and on the new earth as all of that comes. And then last Sunday we picked up this sense that this life following Christ, life of holiness, life of ministry, is to be fully engaged with him in such a way that we toil and struggle. As we see it from our perspective, we're toiling and struggling. We're spending ourselves as taking everything out of us. But we do know that we're toiling and struggling, not in our own strength, but in his strength. We're toiling and struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in us. Now, I was ready to move on, but then I realized I was going too fast. And I had skipped a sentence... (laughs) Every time I say that, people laugh. I don't know why. But, but really, some people think baseball's too slow. Uh, but I, I don't. I think it's too fast. But uh, I'm still thinking between pitches what could be thrown, uh, and then they throw it. Um, but uh, there's this sentence in verse 28 that I think will answer some very important questions for us and help us not only our understanding of Paul's letter here as it unfolds about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, but, but it will help us hear from the Holy Spirit in the context of our own lives. And that's verse 28, this sentence. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That little expression, mature in Christ, made me ask this. What is that? What is this maturity in Christ? Is it attainable? And if it's attainable, how? What is this maturity in Christ? Is it for everyone or just for a select few? And how do we get there? Is it something that this only Paul does, presenting everyone mature in Christ? Or, or, or is there others involved in this work of presenting everyone mature in Christ? What's that little expression mean, mature in Christ? So we see it's in Christ, that it's, it's those who belong to Christ. So Paul's talking about a maturity that belongs to those who belong to Christ. And it is for everyone. He desires to present everyone in Christ mature. 
to everyone who's in Christ, not just a select few, not just some spiritual, super spiritual saints, but every single one. If you're, a, if you're a young person, you're realizing, okay, my purpose, my goal, the end result of this is that I'm to be mature in Christ. If Paul knew me and I said, Paul, what's your plan for my life? He said, oh, that I would present you before God mature in Christ. In fact, if you're young, you should go to your parents and say, what's your goal for me? In my life. And if they say anything other than to present you before God mature in Christ, they've got the wrong goal, right? If it's anything other than that. Now, they may say it a little differently than that. Give them some grace. But, but that's, really what, that's really what their goal should be for you. Your goal should be for your life. My goal for my life is that I would mature in Christ. That's it, you see. So that's Paul's goal in ministry. It's our goal for our lives. It was the Holy Spirit who gave him this goal. He says, all the people that you meet in Christ, I want you to, to, to mature them, to grow them up. We're to grow in Christ. Peter puts it like this in one of his epistles. He says, we're to grow into salvation. What an interesting expression. To grow into salvation. You've been saved. It's all done and all of that. Now, in the course of your life, grow up in it. Live in it. It's as if it's, it's parents telling their children, you live in my household. Now grow up. Live in my household. You're to grow up in this. We're to grow in our faith and grow in our love. There's a, to be a maturing process. It's interesting. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he commends them for, his, for their faith and love. And then if you look in 2 Thessalonians, the second letter he wrote to that church, chapter 1, verse 3, he commends them for their increasing faith and their increasing love. So between letter 1 and letter 2, if they hadn't grown any, you get the suspicion he would have said, uh, you haven't grown in faith and love. You were doing really well back in letter 1, but now by letter 2 you should be increasing in faith. There's always this growing, that's this sense of maturing to come to maturity. Now this little word maturity is or mature as it's here in, in this particular sentence in the Bible comes from a Greek word that means end or the end purpose or completeness. Being fully grown, that's the sense of maturity. There's nothing lacking. It's where it ought to be, if you will. It's mature, it's fully grown. Somebody, one of my neighbors the other day was talking to me about their yard and they mentioned a mature rose bush. <laughs> I had to think about what that meant for a minute. Uh, a rose bush that's all out, out on its own. Um, but it's it mature in the sense that it's, it's, it's as big as it's going to get. It's as big as it needs to get. It's as big as it's going to get. And it's producing roses, as many as it ought to. And in such luster and all of that. However, roses are measured. But that's, it was a mature rose bush. Um, while I was living at the hospital in the month of April, uh, felt a bit like Tom Hanks in Terminal, but uh, if you know the movie. But um, the, the month of April, uh, a bird moved into our front porch uh, because probably didn't think anybody lived there because no one did during that month. And, and so, right, we have this little stoop, and some of you have been to our house, this little stoop, and there's this pillar that goes up that holds a little covering over, and we've got some ivy growing up it, and right about eye level is a nest with birds. And we've been watching them because every time you open the door, the mother robin flies at you like, I'm going to kill you. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty dangerous to open our front door right now or to come even to our front door. Uh, so be careful. But, but they're maturing. I've watched these little birds. They've grown up and now they're able to stick their heads underneath, out from underneath their mom as she's sitting on them. And, and when she's gone, you can see them now coming up above the nest. And, and she's gone more now than she used to be. I don't know what she's doing. 
but we're watching. And, um, but she's gone a bit more, and we anticipate, it won't be too long till those birds will really flew the coop, fly the coop, whatever, and, because they'll be mature, meaning they'll be able to live on their own. We grow up our kids to maturity. We want them to grow to full stature of human beings. So they'll be fully grown someday physically, fully grown some, someday intellectually, be able to think their own thoughts, if you will, make their own decisions, be able to, 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 to problem solve in healthy kind of ways. We want them to be mature socially, be able to have good, healthy relationships and so forth. We want to, them to uh, mature financially so they can actually leave and pay their own way and all of that. But the... Um, <laughs> Uh, so we want to grow up and, and mature, and, and, and that's our goal for them, that they mature so they can be on their own, be, be, be functioning, fully functioning people. They're mature people. And so you get that sense, too, in our spiritual life. We're born again. We're born anew. We come to faith. We repent of our sins. We begin then to grow up in Christ, and there's a goal to this, that we become mature. And that maturity, you see, is really reflected by this expression, Christ-likeness. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says that we've been, uh, we've been predestined and we've been called and we've been justified and we will be glorified. And the end game of all of this is that we be conformed to the image of Christ, to be like Christ. We won't become God. We're not going to be divine. That's, that's not his point. But here is Jesus, the perfect man. We're to be like him as one who fully uh, reflects glorifies, images God. We're to, to be like that, fully human, grown up, mature. And we know that a day will come when we'll be like that. The Apostle John writes like this in First John in chapter 3, in verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So you get this sense that a day will come when Jesus will return and we'll be made like him, we'll see him, and in seeing him, we'll, we'll be transformed. The scripture says in, in like the, 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 the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be changed and to be like him, and so in righteousness and holiness. So that really is Paul's ultimate aim. And in a sense, what he's saying is, I want to present you before God. I want you to go before God on, on, on the day of salvation, if you will. And on this day, I want you to be there. So Paul's hope is that he sees all these people uh, in glory, and he'll see them transformed uh, into the very image of Christ. But Paul himself has said he hasn't reached that yet. In Philippians in chapter 3, verse 12, he puts it like this. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect or mature, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, I'm not there yet, but I'm pressing on. So Paul even admits that he's in this process of maturity. He's in this process of maturity. And so, so we live in this process of maturity in, 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 in growing up. In fact, the way that Paul puts it in Colossians in chapter 3, and we'll get there in a while. Um, He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's this renewal going on, this maturing process that's going on. So here's Paul saying, what I want is is that everyone be presented to God, mature in Christ. That will happen on this day in glory. But but, but, but now I I want them to be growing up, growing up to maturity.
And though we won't reach it perfectly in absolute terms, there is a relative maturity, if I could put it that way. There is this sense of some, that we're growing up and, and we should be maturing even to the point of being able in some sense to be called mature. For instance, Paul writes this, Philippians chapter 3 again, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me, has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm continuing to press on. Then notice what he says, verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, and if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So Paul, in one sense, he's saying, I haven't made it. But then he says, now everybody who is mature, I want you to think like me. Like what? Well, to think, I haven't made it yet, and I'm still progressing on. (laughs) So part of maturity is I know I haven't made it yet, but I'm still pressing on. But Paul says pressing on, knowing the value of Christ, because he's just said that his life is to count loss everything that's not of Christ and to put on everything that is. So he says, knowing the value of Christ, I press on. That's this sense of maturity. So in some sense, we won't reach it in an absolute sense to glory. But he said, I want you to grow up so that you can be mature. In fact, um, Epaphras, who was the one who founded the church in Colossae, is said by Paul to still be praying for this church. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So this is making sense. There's this sense that we won't reach absolute maturity until we see the Lord. But there is this sense that we're to grow up and be mature believers. That we're not to stop at our just coming to faith. That we're to continue to grow up. And there is this hope, even in this life, of some great measure of maturity. That's where we're headed, you see. Francis Schaeffer once said, that moms often talk about their birth experiences with their children. Uh, mostly, though, pretty soon after their kids are born. And he says, you know, if you're still talking about your child's birth experience when your child is 37, and that's the best you've got to talk about about that kid, probably hasn't been a very good life. There should be other things after the birth experience that are very, very significant in the context of maturity, of growing up. But that's the same way in our Christian life. If all we can talk about is the day of our salvation, if all we can talk about is when we came to faith, good thing to talk about. We all, you know, it's good to know that if you, if you know that. Um, I grew up, can't remember not believing in Jesus. Not as good as my wife's, of course, some of you know that. She tells people she got saved in the backseat of my car. Um, some people say saved from what Uh, but um, I'll let her explain the rest of that but anyway so it's a good thing to know if you are so inclined to know that moment that's a nice thing but really we're, we're to know of our life and this life should be a life of maturing of growing up of maturing so Epaphras says I'm praying 
so that you can stand mature, complete in Christ. Paul's saying, what I want you to be is complete in Christ, to be mature in him. So what's that mean? Well, we could use this term, uh, being conformed to the image of Christ. What's that mean? Well, in one sense, it means being like Jesus, of course. And, and what was he like? He was, he was one who lived to honor, to glorify his Father. In fact, he said, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father saying. In other words, he relied completely upon his Father, to glorify his Father, so that, so that people would see Jesus and love God, you see. And thus, we're to be like that. We're to, be, we're to have this sense about us that we're to live in such a way that glorifies God, that honors him. You remember Jesus said that people should see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So that should be, you see, the, the goal that we have, to rely upon God in such a way that people see our lives and come to love and to know him. Our, love, our lives are to be lives of renouncing that which doesn't belong to God and relying upon God. Uh, the other word for that is repentance, turning away from that which isn't of God and to rely upon him. Martin Luther's first thesis of his 95, the one that informed all the others really, was this, that when Jesus calls a man to repent, he calls him to a lifetime of repentance. And so this sense of always renouncing that which doesn't belong to God and then relying upon God. Someone who's living this Christ-like mature life is a person who's living through dying. And Jesus put it like this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was prior to his crucifixion. That's explained by this word in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What's that mean? Well, to take up a cross means to die, to kill something. And he says, you can't live until you die. What's he mean? He means you can't live until you've forsaken all that which is not a part of Christ, which is not godly. You can't live until you've forsaken all of that, till you put it to death. And then by putting it to death, then you live, you see, unto God. So a person who is Christ-like is a person who lives, in a sense, by way of dying. This person who lives a Christ-like life is a person who obeys God and obeys God's commandments. First John chapter 2, John writes this, and by this we know that we, that, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or matured. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Thus one who's living a Christ-like mature life is one who is obeying God, who knows the value of God. This one who obeys Christ is one, of course, who loves. That is the commandment. This commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another. So deep was this love of Christ that we're even to love our enemies. 
that's the mature one who's able to love those who would otherwise be known as enemies, to love them. This one is to put on Christ that is the very character of Christ in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Putting on Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. The apostle says that he's in childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Well, what does that look like? Well, later he will say that it looks like fruit, fruit coming from the Holy Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control, forgiveness, all of those that bear fruit coming from the very Spirit of God who is forming Christ in us. That's what it means, living in this Christ-like way. Mature ones are those who've grown up to such a degree that they're no longer tossed to and fro. Notice, we read this earlier out of Ephesians and chapter 4, verse 12. He writes that the church is given, in Christ has given gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body in Christ until we attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That is, we're doing this together. We're doing this together. We're growing up to maturity together. We need each other. And he says, you need all, that the, all the gifts that the church has been given by Jesus. You need these apostles who are sent out to start new works. You need prophets who come and speak the word of God. You need evangelists who are trained and can train others in sharing the faith. You need those who are pastors and teachers to help you and to shepherd you and all of that so that you can grow up together and, and come to a unity of the faith, knowing the same Christ, trusting in him, the real Christ, the one who's revealed through the scripture, the one who actually did come and live and die and rise again and ascend that Christ, so that you can go to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children are easily deceived by appearances because children often have an overestimation of what they can do. Small children look downstairs and say, I can do that. Mature people put gates up. Children say, I can open that cabinet and drink what's ever in there. Mature ones put locks on those cabinets. Easily tossed to and fro, easily deceived children. Paul's saying that mature ones are those who aren't easily deceived, that don't grab a hold of every trend that's flying around the Christian horizon, but rather stay to it and stay to that which is true. Mature ones. And they do that because they've listened. They've listened to apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, and they've grown up together and with each other. They've spoken the truth in love, he says growing up in every way together. They're stable. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 5, almost done with this laundry list. Hebrews in chapter 5, he puts it like this. He says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Mature ones are those who have practiced what they've heard 
the ones who've put it to practice and they've, they've been able, therefore, over time to distill, to discern what is good and what is evil. They've grown up. They've learned. They've learned, for instance, through perhaps difficult experience. And James writes this to us in chapter 1 of James. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. That is mature. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so on the one hand, difficult circumstances bring maturity because they test us. You know, in order to have a testimony, you have to go through a test. In order to testify of that which is true, you have to go through a test. And so this sense of tests that come mature us. And in the sense of their maturing us, we're ready more so for the next one. And thus, those that have been through such testing time and time and time again know this. And they can say to us as we're going through our first test or our second test or our tenth test, relax, God is with you. He will help you. He'll see you through. He'll strengthen you. He'll empower you. Yes, it'll be difficult. Yes, it'll be grievous. But trust him, you'll come out. Believing, stronger, yes, you will. See, we want the person who's been through a hundred of those to tell us that, not the person who's only read about it. Right? Mature ones, they test, they know, they've been tested, these mature ones. We watched Habakkuk mature as we work through that prophet's life. He started out wondering, where is God? What really is going on here? You remember, as we went through that study, by the very end, he says, I still don't know what's going on here, but I trust you. Read through the book of Job. You watch Job mature. Oh, he was a righteous man. But then he went through a serious test. And by the end of the day, he didn't understand all the ins and outs. But his faith was secure. And he would tell you, when you're going through this, trust in God. So you see, that's Paul's bent to mature everyone up. And that's our bent to seek that kind of maturity, to live it through, not to be content to where we are, but to continue to mature. Now the question quickly is, how, do, how did Paul do that? What was his MO? What was his method? What was his, his practice? Notice uh, how, he puts, how he puts it. He says, him we proclaim. And that's exactly the way it ought to be put. In English, it would be better put, we proclaim him. In fact, if you have an NIV, I think it does say we proclaim him. Fine translation. But in Greek, uh, often Greek sentences are what we call front-end loaded with that which is most important. And so in Greek, it really is laid out, him we proclaim. Meaning, the most important part of that little expression is him, not proclaim. Proclaim is important. You can't get it done without that. But, but, But you could proclaim the wrong stuff. If you're not proclaiming him, it doesn't do you any good. He says the way that we reach maturity, the way that we grow people up, the way we grow our children up, the way we've grown up ourselves, is proclaiming Christ, the real Christ. You remember when Paul came to the church in Corinth, um, he had this, and we view Paul as this brilliant philosopher, this brilliant theologian. Here's what he said about himself. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul knew tons of things. He was a very smart man. He'd been trained well in all kinds of academic disciplines. But he said, listen, all that matters is that you know Christ and him crucified and everything that enters into that and everything that comes from that. He says, 
And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what he said. It was most important. He wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, may I never boast, save in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's, you see, what was most on his mind. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim. That's what was on his mind. And it was a proclamation, a declaration. <laughs> we chafe under the fact that the gospel isn't a dialogue. The gospel really isn't a conversation. The gospel's a monologue. It's a declaration. It's a revelation. It comes to us from God. Oh, we talk about it and we should. We ask questions of it and we should. But the bottom line is, it is what it is. To quote every famous athlete that exists. It is what it is. It's the gospel. It's the declaration. It's what God has said it is. It is nothing short of that. It's nothing other than that. It simply is the declaration of the gospel. We live in a generation where everyone wants to be heard. We blog and we Twitter. Although I wonder if those who Twitter are twits. But anyway, anything about that. But everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to self-disclose. That's what we need to do. We need to get it out there. My opinions, my opinions, my opinions. And that's wonderful. We live in a, an age of unprecedented ability to communicate with each other. And, 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 and we use this in all kinds of good ways. But you see, Satan preys on all the good things. You can always tell when Satan's going to be involved in something. And that is when something good shows up. You can always tell when a liar is lying because his lips are moving. You can always tell when Satan's going to be involved when anything good comes about. He's going to work in it to deceive it and to cause deception through it. And what happens, I think, in the midst of all this, my opinion, not Bible, my opinion is that we have to be careful because we're, we're allowing this wonderful ability to communicate with each other to cause us to self-disclose and not listen. To be more concerned about being heard than about listening. And the gospel is all about listening. The gospel is all about humility to listen to that which is proclaimed by someone who is greater than we, God himself. It's a monologue, first and foremost, not a dialogue. There is no real negotiation in this gospel. It is what it is, declared by God. So Paul says we proclaim it. We proclaim it in all kinds of ways. Certainly it includes preaching. The necessity of all of this. I, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was God ordained. I wouldn't subject you to almost said 30 minutes of me every week, but it's a bit more than that, I suppose. But who's counting? Um, but that sense, it's necessary. Somebody's got to do this. Someone has to make this proclamation of truth. So God says to the church, this one, this one, this one. So it's necessary for us to do this, to come together on a sabbatical way, in a Sabbath kind of way, a weekly kind of way, and, and take time out and listen, to, to be reminded, to hear it once again, however good it may come across uh, in terms of delivery. But it's necessary for us to pause, to hear, to listen, to receive this proclamation. We proclaim it, declare it, the truth in love, as the scripture says, to one another all the time. That's what we're to do. And the, and the method here, the method of proclamation includes warning and teaching with all wisdom. Now that little expression with all wisdom is, is of great necessity. Because while the gospel is what it is and it's non-negotiable and all of that, people's lives are different. 
And so we have to be aware of that. There are people who are sad and we share with them the truth and love. We have to take into account their sadness, their discouragement, their difficulty of life. When other people are proud, we have to take that into account in our sharing with them of, their, of, their, uh, of this gospel. When, when other people have grown up in it or haven't heard it at all or whatever the context is, then, then we know, as Paul said, that he became all things to all people in order that he might save some. There's wisdom in this, especially wisdom in warning. This whole sense of warning or admonition means that there's something wrong and it needs to be corrected. And so when we come to people with these warnings and admonitions, we have to realize that already we're going to look arrogant and proud because we're coming to correct something that we believe is wrong in them. And so we must do that with all wisdom. In other parts of the scripture, we'd say all gentleness. In fact, when Paul speaks of his own life of warnings and admonitions with people, he explains it like this. When he talked to the elders of Ephesus, you can find this in Acts chapter 20. When he talked to the elders of Ephesus, he says, I never ceased day or night warning you with tears. You get the sense that he knew something was wrong. He knew something in the world was wrong and he he warned them not to go there, not to live like that, not to believe in those things which are wrong. But he did it with tears, meaning he felt for them. He first knew the great danger and he didn't want them to go there. And so, so, so deep was his emotion that he would cry. But also, you get the sense too that he empathized with them and he knew the, the frailty of human beings and he knew, uh, that, that, that he too could be sucked up in that. And so in his own humility, it brought him to tears as as he warned. He told the church in Corinth that I warn you like a father warns his children. That kind of sense. He tells the church in Thessalonica to warn one another, not as enemies, but as brothers. But as brothers. There's that sense of, of warning out of love, speaking the truth in love. The necessity of warning. In fact, we're to warn one another, but, but only in certain circumstances, only with a certain heart. For instance, in Colossians in chapter 3, Paul writes to us like this, verse 15. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. See, we're to warn one another and teach each other only when The word of Christ dwells in us richly. See, that's our ticket, if you will. Before you warn someone, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Before you teach someone, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? That would be the question. Romans fifteen fourteen puts it like this, Paul does. He writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct or warn, admonish one another. He says, listen, this is when warnings work. When you're full of goodness and you're filled with all knowledge. Be cautious in your warnings. Do it with wisdom and knowledge being filled with that very word. And to teach. Teaching is of great importance. What we know to be true about Christ leads us. We can't live Christ-like unless we know about Christ, unless we know who he is, unless we know him. That comes by way of teaching. In the Great Commission, Jesus put it like this. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching everyone, teaching all that I command, teaching, teaching them to obey 
all that I commanded you. It's a teaching. Explain, instruct, lay out. And this takes words. It doesn't take just life. It takes words. For us to know God, it took words. He created everything, but, but that didn't communicate all that we needed to know. He's done actions. Now, he gives us his word. He explains it. He talks it through with us, for us. He declares it to us. He says, I want you to teach. I want you to go to one another, teach each other, and lay it out. Was it St. Francis of Assisi that says he witnesses, but sometimes he uses words or something to that effect? That's great, but you've got to use words. A good life in America means that you're a good American. You have to explain to people. In the hospital, we, my wife especially, went to great lengths to explain to people that the reason she was hopeful, the reason that she was being nice to them, the reason that all this was happening, they could just see stuff happening, was because of God. To make that connection, you see. We need to talk. And people, by the grace of God, as he is at work, will in fact listen. This warning and teaching the warning is don't stop growing. The teaching is mature in Christ. Uh, there's this expression, I'll end with this. There's this expression that I've heard said, in fact, I've heard it said because I've said it. This expression that God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. Now, at least when I've said that, what I meant is this that God's more concerned about us being holy than he is about our comfort. And so if he's got to shake up our comfort to cause us to be holy, he will do that in all kinds of ways, some of which might be unimaginable to us. But I don't believe that statement, as it stands at least, is at least fully accurate. Because I believe God is very concerned about our happiness, at least about our joy and our well-being. But this is true, that there is no happiness without holiness. And God knows that. And so for God to leave us in a happy but unholy state would mean that he does not love us, which means he's judged us and given us over. Because any happiness that we experience in an unholy place is fraudulent. It's not real. It's fake. And so if we're feeling happiness in the midst of sin, if we're feeling happiness in the midst of a lie, if we're feeling happiness in the midst of a lust, if we're feeling happiness in the midst of hurting someone else, if we're feeling happiness in not helping someone else when we should, if we're feeling happiness in those moments of selfishness and pride, then God, if he loves us, must come to make us holy because there's real happiness in selflessness, in humility, in gentleness, in kindness, in forgiveness, in sharing, in giving, in sacrifice. There's real happiness there. The warning is, if you live without growing in maturity, you'll be miserable. The teaching is, there's happiness in maturity in Christ. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. We believe that. We believe there's no pleasure other than the great pleasure of knowing Christ and walking with him. There's no joy outside of knowing Christ and walking with him. And so, Father, I pray in believing that, that you would enable us to grow on to maturity. We wouldn't stop where we are, press on, so that we'd be like Christ, so that we'd put him on, 
so that we would be people of kindness and love and joy and peace and patience, humility, gentleness, forgiveness. That we would be compassionate people to help others. We would find all joy there. Father, we would be people who control their tongues. We would be people who can live together in unity. That we would be people who would not be tossed to and fro because of every new thing going on. But we would stick to that which is true of Christ. Add nothing, take away nothing. Father, we would listen to the declarations of the gospel every time they come from whatever person um, they come from. And we would be filled in such a way with your word that we could warn one another, teach one another. We'd be humble enough to receive warning from each other and teaching from each other that we may grow up together, that you might be glorified. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. response to the benediction will be for us to sing together so please receive this as God's benediction and now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good thing for doing his will working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord and together let us sing